Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, your body, and your movement. Today's beautiful conversation was with my new friend, Chris Duffin. Chris is someone that I've been following for years. He's literally one of the strongest human beings on the planet. He's the only guy to have ever deadlifted and squatted 1,000 pounds. Not only did he deadlift and squat 1,000 pounds, but he did them both for repetitions, which is an insane feat of strength and also kind of goes against most laws of mechanics in the body. So typically, if someone has a big deadlift, then they're not going to squat so well. If they have a big squat, then it might be a little bit more limited for them to be able to create leverage in the deadlift. But uh, he figured out a way to crack that code. And he's just a brilliant mind in general. He has a very fascinating story. Uh, He grew up without a home essentially, and had a very checkered history in the way that he grew up. So his journey from getting where he was to where he is today is incredibly fascinating, incredibly inspiring, and I'm so grateful and excited to share that journey with you guys today. We get into a lot of specifics of how to get stronger, how to heal your muscles and your body and your nervous system, and there's some philosophical bits, and this is a really beautiful, far-spanning conversations. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. If you do, share it with your friends, share it with your family members. You can send out smoke signals in the form of a line off of your chimney, whatever is the best way for you to share it if you believe that it would be supportive for other people to listen to. Also, reviews, anywhere you listen to this are great. You can share it on the Instagram, share it on the Facebook, uh, whatever you do. I hope you are having a fantastic day. And I hope this conversation is inspiring and supportive to you. Here we go. Back to the program with the legend, Chris Duffin. How long in your upbringing was that going on that you guys were living in the woods growing pot? And how engaged with it were you? What a cool way to grow up. So it started actually in uh, uh, Mendocino Lake County, just north of uh, San Francisco and uh, kind of the Sonoma area that people know, just north of that out in the, uh, the mountains. I was probably four or five years old and we lived in a, kind of a homestead house that you'd have to hike into with another family for a while. Mm. And that's where my mom learned uh, the trade of, uh, of growing. And then later we moved up uh, further north, and that was, in California, it was until I was uh, through third grade, and that's when we were taken by the state. And then... uh, The kids were? Yeah. The Uh, parents get arrested? My mom did, yeah. For growing pot? I don't remember exactly what it was for. It's kind of a, a weird story. So it was a very remote community, and in the end, it ended up being the sheriff and some of the child protective services in the county were preying on the very poor families there. And they arrested her and took us into custody so that they could, uh, it was a human trafficking ring and they wanted my sisters. And my mom figured it out while she was in jail and got to hold the DA and they ended up the sheriff and a bunch of the police and uh, all went to prison. And that's when they got us back a year later in Oregon. And they decided not to be in the drug trade anymore because they couldn't lose us kids again. But they quickly fell back into living outside of society. So we fell back into living in tents, living in, you know, we had a 16-foot trailer for the family of six. Uh, It was a family of seven, but my brother got kind of picked up when we were in California. And so he didn't live with us after that. And that's how we lived. So, you know, like... To take a bath, you would fill up jugs of water in the river or the creek and set them on a rock and let them heat up in the sun during the day and dump it over your head. Yeah. Or we'd live in homes, you know, during the school year, try to come in close. It might be a shack, might not have running water or electricity or both. And sometimes we did, um, but it was usually it might be a condemned home with nothing at all. It just it just varied on where we were at in life at, at, at the time. Yeah. But I'd say half of my time by the time I graduated high school was was homeless. Wow. Yeah, really kind of some rough stories there. I mean, interacting with, there was a murderer, there was human trafficking, uh, interesting story. Who was doing the human trafficking? The sheriff. Okay. They actually caught the guy that had my sisters who was part of the, the, you know, the 
adopted homes that they would send people to. So he was boarding a plane trying to, it made national news at the time, trying to uh, leave the country, but they, they got him. So yeah, Um, but funny story, he got out 20 years later out of prison and he tracked my mom down out in the Eastern Oregon desert, started tracking her and she got, uh, she escaped from him at gunpoint. Uh, and then set up another town. And then over the, I think four months later, the police came in and checked uh, his property for poaching and they found four women dead and buried. So he was a, he was a serial killer, which dates back to like in 1985, the first time uh, we met him. That was before he was sheriff. It was like a year before he, uh, people were known for disappearing around him in the remote community. Rumors would run around women disappearing. So he came to show up in this little milt community that we lived lived in at the time and saw the weed through the window and my mom and us kids there and went to arrest my mom and my mom was like you got to go find your your stepdad like right now and get some people down here to observe this and so I go booking off you know half mile down the road find dad partying somewhere and uh, get him and some people to come back to observe and that was during the, the school year and then it was that summer that he came back and took us all Whoa. Yeah. Was there love in the trailer, in the family? Or did it feel, did you feel totally unsafe? Did you feel totally unstable? Did you feel like it was you against culture? Did you feel like you against your parents? Did you feel in relation to your parents? uh, The family was very tight. Really? Yeah, family was very tight. Uh, There wasn't, uh, not a lot of like physical love. So no like, you know, hugging and things like that was like not normal to me for some reason. So it just didn't seem to happen that. But outside of that, yeah, uh, it was family was everything. That was our center. We were family against the world, basically, right? Because right? everything in the world was, uh, you know, problematic and how. And you learned that through your parents. Yeah. And so mom was always trying to figure out, like I said, a way she didn't want to be part of society. Now she had some. We don't need to get into that. She had some early childhood trauma that kind of led to her not wanting to be like authority was definitely, you know, an issue. And she was really smart. She was awarded at a high school, like 1500 students. She graduated as a star student athlete and was going to school to become a a chemical engineer when she had me. And then she decided she just didn't want to be part of that. And so my dad was a member of Mensa. My stepfather was like, he was... He was a genius, smarter than all them, but he was also mm. not able to figure out how to manage a life. My mom kind of directed him. And so, like, the library was our friend. We didn't have TV. We didn't have radios. Like, we devoured, devoured content, like, as far as reading. So I was reading, like, deep, heavy stuff when I was really young. Um, like what? Uh, God. Um, <laughs> um, you know, some of my favorite was Ernest Hemingway. Mm. And that was, like I said, that was before even junior high. Um, I loved actually a lot of uh, science fiction type stuff as well, like Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov and stuff like that that I was reading that was, you know, written far higher levels. And then there was just other books on history and things that I'd read that were, you know, just volumes, like books this thick that I'd find find it because I'd be like, that's that's a good book. <laughs> it's just massive. I wonder how and, uh, all, I wonder uh, how all that informed your approach to strength and business and not just the childhood stuff, but also your your interest and maybe even escape into into fiction. I thought about that a lot a little bit this last year because a lot of those stories they're not like a lot of the science fiction that you see now today, which is kind of just like fantasyish stuff. But it was it was all about like creating your own little world, right? Yeah. And that's really what I've I've ended up doing. I'm like, this is the way I want to live and the life I want to have and my own reality, and I'm going to make it. Yeah. Hitler was a big fan of, of fiction and fantasy and such. Mm. I think he like ended up firing one of his uh, thyroid. You got a thyroid thing? Yeah, Hashimoto's disease. You do? Yeah. So what do you got to do now? Uh, I got to remember later when we're done with this to take my, uh, my thyroid meds. All right. Yeah. But I think but, there's something that's really interesting, not not to promote Hitler, but the the value of investing oneself into fiction. I think it's really easy to, at least in, in the world that I've come from, to be, if it's not you know, measurable, linear, mm, I can put it into yeah, a yeah, beaker yeah. and have clinical studies and all that stuff, mm-hmm. I'm not interested in it. 
Um, but I think there is something to that, that magic and allowing our minds to, to bend shape through submersing ourselves in someone else's fictional tale mm-hmm. story and how that can spill into the creation of yeah. novel ideas to lead to you know, evolution. Yeah. Or revolution, yeah. or you know, change in yeah. an industry, or a strength like doing something that, like you, being the first person to squat and deadlift a thousand pounds. Yes, for reps. Uh, yes, well, I, just to do it in general, but I just did to do reps, and which is create, absolutely insane. I create, and I, I wonder if so there I could have create, been some perfect storm of balance and of between that upbringing and if perhaps that, well, that fictional the perspective could... I wanted the, own, the creativity to create my, my own event because I was competing in powerlifting. I walked away from that. I walked away from everything at that point in my life. Yeah. But that was when I was like, I was ranked number eight in the world and I quit and everybody's like, oh, you're just going to be a, a YouTube or Instagram lifter. I'm like, well, whatever you want to call it. I've, I've walked the walk and proved myself. Right. But I want to do this thing. I want to demonstrate this certain thing in a certain way that nobody's ever done before. And there's no platform to do it. So whatever, that's what I'm doing. And uh, a lot of people want to just continue to follow whatever the constraints are. And yeah. Were you optimistic growing up? Like how was your mind in those scenarios when you were 15, 16, 14, 17, like that chunk? Like coming into manhood, yeah. you know, you're starting to be pubescent and testosterone things are happening and you're starting to probably see yourself as this and see the outside world as that, whereas when you're young, you're just in the cocoon. You're just in the, well, kind of. I mean, I was, I was raising my sisters at home every day. Like when, you know, the police showed up to, to take us all in, it was just me with my sisters and my brother. And yeah. in later years, same thing. You know, I was always caring for them. I ended up taking custody of them later, by the way, and raising them. Yeah. But, but it would be normal. It was whereas normal. you get to an age where it's yeah. like you can start to look around and say like, oh, interesting. So I would there, think. There, there was an interesting transition. So there's this point of like I was this really, really quiet, introverted kid that had a lot of self-confidence problems. And <laughs> I, I wasn't socialized well. I didn't interact. And, you know, I was made fun of because of what I wore, how I looked, you know, all those sorts of things. And, you know, that fed into that. But I also was packing rocks up hills, splitting wood, doing things like very physical, having to set up camp, hang tarps, do all sorts of, just do and accomplish things. To survive. To, to survive. And some point in high school, I started lifting weights too, which had a huge impact on my self-confidence. So around like 12 years old, 13 years old, I started lifting weights. And then there was this transition somewhere between like my freshman year into like my sophomore junior must have been soft because I started getting really successful at wrestling too and I think back because I I'm a very confident person not like ego wise but I believe I can if you put something in front of me I can I might fail at it but if I really want to figure it out I I can do it I will do it if I wanted to do that you know the things that we were trying yesterday I couldn't do if I really wanted to do it and set my mind to it I believe I can do that and if I believe I can start my own business when it's failing and I've lost everything in my life and I'm in an apartment and I don't have a marriage anymore and I've lost my homes and I've lost my retirement and I haven't paid myself for three years. I know I'm going to make it successful. I know I can fucking pull it off and it's hard, but I believe it. Yeah. And when I think back, there was, I started having that confidence around that time. Mm. I knew I could do it. And there's a funny story. My wrestling coach, High school wrestling coach. He works for me now, by the way. Uh, uh, he got interviewed for the document. Anyway. Um, was he nice to you during the wrestling time? Yeah. Okay. He was one of my few early mentors. But okay. That would be like a Leonard Skinner story. No. You know the story of Leonard Skinner? No. Leonard Skinner, I'm pretty sure Leonard Skinner was the name of their gym coach or gym teacher or yep. whatever. And he was like an asshole to him. He was like, you're, yep. you're going to be your failures, you're smoking pot, you know, all the things. And now they're like one of the most famous bands yeah. in history. You're like, Leonard Skinner, for sure, Leonard Skinner. (laughs) No, no. So I was, uh, I, I I was, you know, captain of the wrestling team, and I was, I was pretty good, but I'd been beaten by like three people in the, in our district, heading into the district's meet, which you got to place top two to go to state. And coach is, you know, like a a week before district, he's like, "Hey, how do you think you're going to do?" I said, "Well, I'm winning." And he's like, "Good." So I go through and I go to districts. I've been beaten by three people. I go all the way to the final match. I don't have a single offensive point scored against me all the way through in the final match. District champion without a single point against me. I go into state. 
coach asked me, how are you going to do? I'll make it to the final match. I went all the way through state. All indications would be I wouldn't do that. But even he believed me at the time when all evidence was against me. There'd be three people that had beaten me that when I said, I'm doing that, I had such confidence with what I said that he's like, oh, yeah, Chris is probably going to do that. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think that came from, that's where I was framing it around, like, the thing, like, accomplishing things and doing things. Like, it had started building to a point and then the lifting weights and other stuff that I had enough experience to know that I could accomplish things. Yeah. I could overcome things. And uh, that's where that started developing at. How would a person that maybe doesn't come from growing up in the woods, catching rattlesnakes and packing rocks <laughs> up hills and having police at their door and whatnot and clearly needing to overcome controversies and, and issues in their, their, their upbringing, which everyone has their own level of, of issues that we're all dealing with. You know, everyone's fighting a great war inside. Yeah. But that growth mindset that you clearly developed, what's a was, formula was, to start to develop I was pushed that? into those, though. So, um, you know, it's like six years old. I was taught to capture and hold and handle live rattlesnakes because we were yeah. living next to rattlesnakes then and we were living in tree forts. Do you, like, per, do you perceive all that as a gift? Yes. Yeah. Is there anything you, in your life that you don't perceive as a gift? I mean, the, the, the obvious mindless answer would be like, no, there's nothing. But I wonder if you, if you think into it more. I'd have to, I'm sure that I could come up with a reason for that, but there's nothing that comes to mind. Great. Right. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's the ideal. And and it's like I have a tough time, you know, really reflecting on things and like thinking bad about my choices, knowing maybe I could have done something better, but that was the best thing at the time, and this is where I'm at. But to get to your question, where how do you get there? Yeah. You know, if you're not put there, it is purposeful action. This is the thing that I've learned. So, so outside of the crazy upbringing, and there's a lot more depth to that story than than what we've touched on. And we well, can keep touching it if you want. I'm, I want to answer. I want to answer your question though. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I I did that. I put myself through college. I took custody of my three younger sisters. I raised all of them. I became a corporate executive doing turnarounds for companies. Like I did, I did some wild stuff. That scope is huge. And then I walked away from all that too. Everything. <laughs> And uh, so this methodology, this approach, like, really works in my mind in so many environments. It works in athletics. It works in life. It works in uh, entrepreneurship. It works in, you know, corporate leadership, all this sorts of stuff. I've done it. And that is what I learned and then what I became to consciously practice is we have to have the experiences to gain that confidence, to gain the exposure and for the growth. So when we have those things in our life, where your gut is starting to twist a little bit with anxiety and fear, but also a little bit of excitement, it's scary. It's the maybe starting a relationship or taking a relationship to the next level. Maybe it's the confrontation or a problem with a coworker or your boss or in a relationship. Maybe it's, it could be a lot of different things. Every one of those is an opportunity. And I'm not saying that the outcome of what you that you're gonna that you're gonna win by going. You got this. Like I need to turn and start my own business, or I need to go back to school, or I need to. You know, it scares me. I'm gonna move that direction. That it's gonna be successful, but you facing that is going to give you the confidence. You stepping into it. So when you feel that, we need to turn towards it. Yeah. Those stress, the adaptation, the challenge, all of that is an opportunity for us to become stronger and more resilient as a person, right? And it's the signal that that's a growth opportunity right fucking there. And we turn away from it all the time because we want to find comfort. We want to find lack of confrontation. We want to find that, that environment. We're ready to, you know, have, have the mansion and no concerns or that retire in the Caribbean and take it easy. So this is maybe some of the things to think about too when we're very, like on the yoga mindset thing is we're always trying to like, we need to find inner peace. We need to find this. We also need to find the opposite of it at times. Yeah. We have to find it and turn into it, turn towards it because that is your opportunity. When you stop having that in life, that's when you start dying. 
I'm not joking. Let's take this bro science level, okay? If you go to the gym and you do some curls, what happens? Your arm gets bigger and stronger. You break your arm and you put a cast on it. What happens? Atrophy starts, the muscle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is a stimulus, so the break actually causes an electrical stimulus, which yeah. causes uh, the osteoblast to, to, to move and deposit the calcium. And, <laughs> but that also happens when you put a weight on your arm or in your hand, it causes the bone to grow. Yeah. My bone density is four times the standard deviation. Yeah, I believe that. It's that, funny how we, we guide the growth of our bones through electrical stimulus. It's literally like, a, like an electrical wand. It's a, it's wel- like a magic it's, it's wand. It's the same process as welding. Yeah. It, it is, yeah. Explain more. Uh, positive and negative charges happen from a, it's a, a piezoelectric charge. Yeah, piezoelectric so, charge. So, yeah, piezoelectric charge, which is, causes that. That which sends the signal to the osteoblasting pull, class where to, where to break down or yeah, where, to, where yeah. to add. It stops the breakdown and, and continues the blast part. Yeah. Right? It takes the raw materials, which if you just have on your own, if you just like, people are like, oh, I have my calcium and my collagen and my bones are going to grow. There's well, like, no, you have to actually have the stimulus too, which is, that's the whole point of what we're talking about here. You have to have the stimulus yeah. or we don't get change or the atrophy starts, okay? We quit having the stimulus for the muscle and so the atrophy starts. We happen to have a stimulus for the, for the bone, so it does heal. But if you leave that cast, if we continue not to load it, no, it won't. It will become weaker, right? This is... Put a tree in a biodome. This is what happened. They didn't took them a long time to figure it out. Mm, needs wind. Yeah, to tell it because it, otherwise it'll grow to a certain just, height and just fall over. Yeah, and you have to have the wind to tell grow big, strong root structure, hold that robust dark bark to withstand the elements. If not, it kills itself. Yeah, which is it why it's a bummer itself. to be like everybody gets a trophy soccer tournaments. Uh-huh. It's like no, 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 like you need to learn. So I said, to I'm lose. not telling you you're going to win by moving yeah. by turning into it. Yeah, you need feedback now. You're going to get some feedback at some point. Like yeah. let's start young. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> but enough feedback to keep you in the game. Exactly. Too much. Like I said, most of the people. My therapist. He's first is like he's like I don't know how you're not dead in prison or on drugs. Mm. And a lot of the people I grew up around, that's what happened to them, okay? So how do you grow the container to be able to contain the stress? That is, it's a, just the same process as training, right? You can't walk into the gym and squat 500 pounds or 225. You don't just walk in and just go to, to max and fail. What happens? You end up going too much. You can't walk the next day. Yeah. You keep doing it. You do your CrossFit daily double seven days a week you're going to break down, okay? So we have to progressively build that Res- resilience. Respectfully lean into our boundaries. So we got to find where that boundary is, yeah. explore it. We have to explore those limits of it and then step back and then come back and see where it is the next time. Unless we push, if, unless we, we explore that, that's how we define who we are ourselves. How do you know who you are as an individual if you don't know what your limitations are? Your limitations are a big part of who you are. Mm. With good and bad. There's nothing wrong with what those limitations are. Some areas you don't need to push. And sometimes your limitation, your belief of your limitation is total bullshit. Yes. Yeah. So parsing that out is kind of the, the, the game, I think. Yeah, yeah. How much do you care about the squatting and deadlifting in 1,000 pounds? Is that meaningful to you or is that something that's... Like I, I did a recorded podcast with a guy recently who won a Nobel Prize and he was really enamored by his Nobel Prize. For him, that was like, ah, like, I've done it. You know, it was like a big deal. Yeah. For, for some other people, a Nobel Prize is like, I don't give a shit. It's just some trophy. Like, it doesn't, I care about the work. Like, for you, oh how was I used to throw, I, All my throw, trophies are all thrown away. I don't care. The trophies like, are weird. I don't, I don't freaking, yeah. I don't, like, please keep, I don't want it. Like, it's going to go in the recycle bin, but other people, they got them on the walls. Turn into some bullets or something. There's three three components to what I wanted to do with with that. I call the grand goals, right? Over the top. Part of it is related specifically to the education that I teach. So I wanted to demonstrate through walking the walk myself. I don't want to just be the educated person that speaks this stuff, but to be able to show people what you can accomplish through being able to manage and control spinal mechanics. Somebody that's had a disc injury in the past, somebody that had to learn to walk again in the past is a result of that, that that doesn't have to define you. Yeah. And that what I teach and the methodology that we use, it works and it's real. Here it is. 
so I picked the two basic movements and also that I think every human, able-bodied human without a disability should be able to do. Pick something up off the ground yep. and be able to do a hinge squat pattern. That's what I call it in my book. It changed the whole vernacular of like, it, instead of like squat, just like it's not, pick shit off of the ground. That's what we're talking per- about. Perfect. Do it effectively. Yes, that's, that's it. what it is. Yeah. Like it doesn't have, it's a bar. <laughs> it's a, no, no, no. It pick shit up off the ground and it's but be able we're to. we Yeah. So uh, those are two basic human fundamental patterns yeah. that everybody should be able to master that doesn't have a disability. And so I wanted to take those to the level, but then also do it to show that I wasn't a specialist because you can have different lever links and stuff that make you one or the other, which is why there's, you know, six people or so that have squatted a thousand pounds and there's six people that have deadlifted a thousand pounds. Neither have done both, Mm. except for me. Mm. So I wanted to show that, showcase that. The other piece of that was to show people just how much you can accomplish if you set your mind to something and dedicate yourself and to, to be able to walk, to do something just so phenomenally over the top. And that's why it was a thousand pounds. That's why it wasn't the max that I could do. It was specifically a thousand pounds and then to see how many reps I could do with it. Mm. Because it was grand. And then I could tie the grand to exactly that. Grand over the top, the other meaning. So a little bit of marketing, right? But like just this, Here's something, when I set out to do it, I couldn't even tell people what the, the, the full goal was because nobody, it would have been so outlandish yeah. that I would have been laughed at. So it was like, no, all my goal is to deadlift 1,000 pounds. A lot of people, oh, you can't do that. But, you know, some people have done that and so on. Still stands as the Guinness World Record for the sumo deadlift, um, which is cool. Just what, the one rep, not because they only count. Was there anything during that process that you thought you knew to begin, was there a beginning journey of I want a thousand pounds in both? Was there? Or was that kind of something like, was there like a year lead up to that, a 20 year lead up to that? Like, uh, it or was just I want to be really strong? It was, no, and it was, was specifically I, I, I was sitting on my, my girlfriend's couch in Vancouver, BC. It was going through a really rough time. Actually, it was I uh, at a almost suicidal session the, mm. the night before mm. about some stuff that was going on in my life. I'm ADHD and bipolar, you know, like, Bipolar runs in the family pretty bad. And mm. um, my father attempted suicide seven times, once in front of me. Wow. Uh, and wow. uh, his, uh, my grandma blew her head off the shotgun. Her brother jumped out of a building here in LA. Wow. Uh, it goes back. There's no, I'm the only one around. Uh, anyway, so stuff I got to deal with, you know? And I, I, I decided that day, I'm like, I'm done. I'm going to, what I, I'm done powerlifting. I'm, I'm done doing things under, mm. you know, a certain set of rules. I'm like, I want a thousand pounds. And the only way I can do it, because I have this, some, some past existing trauma to my arms and stuff, uh, I have to wear straps. I can't do it without it. And that doesn't meet the competition standard. So, so guess I'm not doing a competition. <laughs> and, uh, I did a video, you know, announcing it on uh, YouTube and, and uh, just said, this is it, I'm, I'm retired, I'm done, this is what I'm going after. And I just left it at that. I didn't say I was doing reps. So I got closer, people started going, wait, you could do a thousand pounds any time now. And I'm like, just no response. By the time I was going for the squat, it was pretty clear at that point, you know, what the goal was. So I went ahead and announced that, that early. But if I had announced that the five, so it was five years, five years I trained for this. It took a year to pull off the first one, the deadlift, because I was closer. And then the four more years of uh, axial loading training <laughs> to increase my axial load tolerance uh, so that I could go for the squat. Because it is, for me, it was harder. Uh, but you know, moving that load up top over my hands was, uh, especially for reps and being able to stabilize that torso. One rep with a squat that weight is one thing. Doing three, it's a whole other thing. Mm. Think, of, you, think about what you know. Yeah. Like going from a few seconds to 30 seconds yeah. Of maintaining that and moving through the positions. You watch the first rep I did. I smoked it. I could have done so much. I could have squatted so much that day. Mm. But three reps, especially wow. my size, only weighing 280 pounds. Wow. Oh, yeah. By the way, the only other people that have deadlifted 1,000 pounds are all like 384. So this was, pounds. you were using straps for this? Yes. Yeah. But I submitted for a Guinness World Record because they count uh, strongman records, yeah. which allow straps. But I couldn't do a strongman cop because strongman doesn't allow sumo. And so I did it as an exhibition lift at a powerlifting meet so that I, I had to have a mayor present. I had to have all these things, uh, you know, to click off those things. But the squat, I couldn't find a way to capture it as a record, but whatever, I don't care. My goal wasn't the record. So there's three things. One, 
was specifically to demonstrate my walking the walk of the education that I teach, doing it, everything, doing all the recovery, the rehab, documenting the process, everything that I go, this shit works, here's the process, here's how we do this at the phenomenal level. Grand, taking this over the top, doesn't matter what aspect of your life, but you can achieve so much more than you possibly think possible. And the third one was charity. That and every event that I did along the way over this five-year period, I raised money for causes that I believe in, like homeless mothers, getting housing, abused teen, sexually abused teen boys. Uh, we did childhood cancer as well because my partner, his uh, grandson got uh, cancer uh, during the course of this too. And then um, Special Olympics. Mm. So, so those were the three, three things that uh, why it's, it's a big deal to me. And it was, I don't, can't describe how hard it was. Yeah. It was insane. It was insane going through that process. It took me months to like even come back after that. What was away? What were you coming back to when it was away? Um, those final phases, just the, the, the emotional fatigue, the, the soul focus, the every, like I wasn't, I wasn't able to perform at my, you know, my work as much during that. Like I, that was every day, everything was figuring out how to recover and prep for the next session that was a week away and learning to get through. It was just all consuming. And then like, I don't know how, by a way, I don't know. It was like waking up out of a daze. Like a couple months later, like you're starting to fog to clear from like a, you know, when I was young and a, a long drinking bin session or something like that. And it's like, oh, oh, welcome back to the world. Like, I, I haven't been here. Mm. It was, I don't, I put myself through, through a lot in that one. It was rough. I want to take a moment and share a supplement that I've been utilizing recently that I've been finding a lot of value from for cognitive function, just to kind of hone in my mind, alleviate certain sensations of brain fog and cloudiness and things of the sort. I've been utilizing Cogna Biotics from BioOptimizers, and when I take the stuff, I actually feel a difference. There's a lot of supplements that I take, and it feels kind of like, you know, you just slam them down a glass of water and cross your fingers and hope for the best. When I take the Cogna Biotics, I actually feel a difference in clarity and insight. Just feels like thoughts come in a little bit easier. And a lot of that has to do with the health of our microbiome. So they contain a whole variety of nootropics and adaptogenic herbs that are supportive for enhancing your mood, managing stress, improving your memory, and it also includes both prebiotics and probiotics. So we're all familiar with the gut-brain connection. If you're in a state of gut dysbiosis, your microflora or the bugs inside your intestines are out of whack, then you will feel it in the rest of your body, also in your brain, in your mind, in your experience of the world. So I've been really enjoying utilizing Cognibiotics, and I recommend you all try it. If you do try it and you don't like it, you can get your money back 100% guaranteed, so you have nothing to lose and you have a whole lot to gain, and you can also get yourself 10% off on your purchase by going to Cognibiotics.com slash align. That's Cogna, C-O-G-N-I-B-I-O-T-I-C-S dot com slash align for a 10% discount per mention if you do not absolutely love it, if you do not notice a difference. That's a big thing. If you do not notice a difference, I want you to get your money back. So try it out, see how it goes. If you don't love it, then get your money back, no big deal. And I think you guys are really appreciate it. So thank you so much for tuning into the podcast and I hope you enjoy the Cognibiotics from Bio-Optimizers. And uh, here we go, back to the program. So do you, you feel like you almost had like disconnect from yourself in a way to, to go into that whatever the pain chamber that you took yourself into to grow? I don't know. Maybe that's like too poetic. But <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I think. Do I, you feel like you connected deeper to yourself through all of that or there was like a level of, of having to step aside from yourself in a way? No. it was, But I was so deep into myself, I wasn't elsewhere. I wasn't able to perceive as much of what's going around around me. During that five-year process, is there anything particular that you learned ab about getting strong and specific belief systems that you previously had that you found to be 
debunked them or found like a new a new path? Um, there's a lot of small shifts that I that I made in finding. When you're writing the fine line, that's when you can discover what works and what doesn't really yeah, fast. Right. So instead of experimenting with something for five years or ten years, you can find out in a month, in a week, in a right. day. So like I squatted 800 pounds every single day one time. And uh, it was every day. I was just like, I once I was two weeks in, Kelly Sturrett I was talking to on a regular basis at the time. We are brainstorming, you know, recovery ways, things to do. And they're just techniques I would come up with. I'm like, let's try. I think this is going to work. And it would like, my brain was just thinking about things differently. And I'd know instantly, okay, this is, this is it. But they're, some of them are pretty complicated <laughs> with a lot of different tools and approaches kind of mixed together. So it'd be really hard to talk about in a podcast, but yeah. they're, they're just revisions on this stuff. But I really came to blood flow and respiration okay. really came to the, to the forefront. So I did end up starting to do a lot more blood flow restriction, both as a preparatory component, which I, I only really used it as a rehabilitation method. So were you like putting the, the G-string strap things on? Um, I, I, I got the, I'm trained in the clinical stuff. So yeah, I started using it several different ways. So uh, one of those was, so I was only squatting at the end once a week. So one of the issues was uh, my body wasn't full. It wasn't ready. Filled out muscles, all that sort of stuff. So the two days prior, I do the BFR work on the legs, just some light training. What is BFR work? Blood flow restriction. So okay. yes, the bands. Yeah. That Can you would, describe that for people? Like what that, what that is exactly? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, if you're watching my videos, you'll see a lot of times I have either currently like these compression blow-up bands around a, a limb, or in some videos you may see a red wrap around my legs or things like that that's used for compression. And there's five different applications for compression. So it's it's understanding. So one of the, you're familiar with a number of these uses, you know, yeah. flossing being one. Sure. It is actively actually um, flushing. So a lot of times, like putting ice on an area doesn't actually like reduce swelling or anything like that. But if we put a, a compression cuff, it forces that drainage, the lymphatic drainage, blood, all that out of there and take it off and the blood can come back. Yeah, ice can slow down. And, you know, absolutely. The, the, the avoid, rice, ice should only be, on the rice should only be used uh, for pain management if you need yeah, it. If you opinion. need to get back in yep. the game, you need so, an analgesic. It so, so it also can change the joint uh, or the angle of the muscle at the insertion. So it can really reduce uh, pain sensation by changing how that's tying into the joint. So that's when you see a red band on my legs uh, during like heavy squat that it's only passive compression, so it's not actually supporting the joint, but it will increase my ability to, to lift. Mm, um, it's like a kinesio tape type thing? It's like just a rubber joint? No, it's just one of your, like, your floss bands. Yeah, Same but thing. your intention is, is to, to adjust. Do it above or it, it one end or the other of the, yeah. And that adjusts the, the tracking? Well, that's going to change if you compress the muscle. Huh. That changes the tendon insertion angle into the thing. And then you're also doing a bit of flossing. You're also having a little bit of blood flow. Now, blood flow restriction is a difference. So that's coming up to a much higher pressure. Yeah. And so there's usually training on a clinical basis on how to do that because you need to manage the venous return flow. So what you do is, let me explain it really simply. You're reducing the blood flow and to an area. It's, well, it's pulling in one area and not coming back. But what it's doing is putting you in deeper fatigue sooner. So you're going to get a response from either hypertrophy, bone density, all those stimuluses. And it does some things with growth hormone release. It's really well studied. And so it just puts you in a fatigue point sooner. So you can train with less weight, get there faster. So I do a lot of lightweight training just so I can speed through a workout, get a greater, it bumps the metabolic effect. So it's a really cool way of training. So anyway, I would do the BFR sessions beforehand, but to... Fill the muscle with blood, have a great diet, have a bunch of nitrates and, and lactate to kind of fill out the muscles and carbohydrates because I haven't trained much, but I don't want to fatigue myself. Yeah. I don't want to fatigue myself, right? But I want to have enough of something to happen to fill out the muscles, to fill out the glycogen store. So I do that a couple of days prior with like some body weight or up, you know, 135 on the bar with the bands on some light, you know, four sets of 20. Mm. Boom, that's it. So that'd fill me out for the session. And then post-training... I would actually do the BFR for passively laying on the couch in the gym. So immediately for five minutes on, one minute off, and is uh, at the end of the session at a much higher pressure. So there's a, uh, you, you measure the occlusion, like if your full occlusion is a certain pressure, 
back it off. So like it would be 60% would be what I would be using for the, the warm-up. I'd also do that for my warm-up so I wouldn't have to consume as much energy or resources in my warm-up. And then I'd like fill out and turn on all the neuro, neurological functions, turn on everything. So I don't have to do as much work to warm up. I don't have to do as much work to fill out. And then also, then the, the one after was to help to, to speed up recovery, right? So anything I could do on that forefront, right? Is the intention with that, they, they do that in, in Thai massage where they'll press their foot down on your hip mm -hmm. and hold it for 30 seconds and then release. It's yeah. like you're crimping a hose yep. to have, allow a bigger surge of blood. Is that essentially what, what you're doing essentially, with that? Essentially, yeah, but it's actually that? doing some really interesting things from a hormonal aspect. So it's tricking the body into thinking you trained. Interesting. Yeah, so it stimulates all the same stuff. And then if you're training while you do it, you don't have any energy. Like all of a sudden, let's say you're, you're doing leg extensions. If you do 100 pounds with it, you put the BFR straps on, you can't do that much. And you'll, you'll do a few reps and you're like, fuck, I can barely go. It's burning and it's, so you don't have wow. to. And so you're in that deeper fatigue that might have taken really you five sets in. And then your last three reps of your five sets is where you're finally in this fatigue point. Now you're in it freaking early and fast. So that's a simplified version. So you're like fasting the muscles from blood. Basically, yeah. Whoa. So like, if I need to do my lats or pecs, I'll put my cuffs on my arms and I'll do an arms, really quick pump session, pull all the blood into my arms, and then go train my back or chest. Mm. Cool. So anyway, we offer a bunch of free education on that, and the bands are on our site too. Right. I sell ones that don't require the clinical training. Don't get yourself something that can have cause full occlusion because you can cause blood clots and kill yourself. Don't um, so we don't want occlusion band. Don't not buy an occlusion band. Mm. And then diet, stuff like that to enhance blood flow, everything, walking, everything that you can do, but also being just this understanding that movement is the healer, but good movement's the healer. So the longer you walk around with dysfunction, yeah. so I started doing most of my recovery work immediately. I would squat and I'd be down on the ground with whoever my person was doing my treatment or doing it myself right then. Yeah. So I could walk out of the gym without being an extension, without being tight, without being, like all this stuff because guess what? Oh, if I do that and everything, even my walk to my car and getting in the house and going home and maybe having a little nice you know, time in bed, like all that's gonna be healing. We lasered my body every week so we could check alignment where it is so we'd know what mm. if our treatment is actually effective so we could see a rotation and twist of the pelvis and stuff like so we could monitor are these changes taking effect and how is that going into place too besides just my subjective measures of this yeah so i i go i nerd out on shit like this Please. you don't need to do That's this to doing. do like yeah. but to to bowl off what i did yeah. like there was so much stuff that that had to be done how many people you see in the world, probably, I mean, definitely myself included, are dumping a lot of potential access to power via having dysfunctional spinal mechanics in daily life. Oh my God. So <laughs> this is, people think about like mobility and power output and things in, in a missed fashion a lot of times. I like to break things down into car analogies. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, me too. Okay, good. So a lot of modern cars have this thing called the traction control on them. You know, you get in and people think that when the traction control is on, when you're going around a corner with some ice, it's going to take the power from the wheel that's slipping and put it to the wheel that's gripping. And uh, that's not how it works, okay? They have the same systems. We've copied them. We've copied what, uh, what our body does. We've got this powertrain, which is our, our muscles, joints, wheels and feet connected to the ground, right? But we also have the neurology, the wires and the computers that run through, through there. And that traction control system works the same exact way in the car as it does in the human body. All right? And how that is, is if there is a risk of you uh, hurting yourself, failing, it shuts it down. And that's right. what the traction control does. The traction control detunes the engine and reduces the shift patterns on the vehicle, reducing your power output. So I can... By manipulating in people and getting them in the right positions, all of a sudden we can make, well, this is what happens to your joints too. Your loss of mobility doesn't happen because you got stronger and didn't do your stretching. It's because you weren't moving in a good manner to begin with. All the stuff you saw with me yesterday, yeah. those are faults of my own from not moving well in certain, in certain fashions because 
Now the body's going to start protecting that joint. You didn't lose hip mobility from squatting. You lost hip mobility from squatting like shit. Yeah. Okay, we didn't push stretching, but most of the times I can, year-round, with zero stretching, 280 pounds, 1,000-pound squatter, I'm only 245 now, uh, I can drop down and do close to the splits. I don't have the body to do a full split, but that's pretty surprising for most people. Yeah. Right? But if you think about it, if I move well with those patterns, I shouldn't have lost that. Right? So we're detuning both our performance as well as this is the root cause of a lot of the issues that you're seeing, right? Is the body putting those protective measures in place. So every time you see it, I'm not saying don't stretch. Stretching feels good. And it's going to help do the triage work as well of of returning that joint to position because the last thing you also want to do is go train and load without being able to get a joint in the right position. So if you can't do that, go freaking fix it. Don't do an overhead movement if you can't get your shoulder in a position. Otherwise, you're going to compromise your spinal position. Simple stuff, right? But thinking that I didn't stretch enough is the problem isn't the true answer. You need to do some more analysis. You're either training like shit or moving like shit. And that stuff, we all got to do it. We all got to work on the fixing the stuff. And especially if it feels good, it makes you feel good. And it's part of your mental, like, I'm not saying don't do it at all. But don't think that it's necessarily the fix. Yeah. But by these minor shifts, I can take I can take a minor shift in somebody's. I hate the term packed neck, so we don't go there. But in you hate uh, the term neck, packed neck. Oh, packed neck. Because okay, okay, people yeah, won't do this. Like, yeah. no, no, no. That, I no. didn't mean you hate the term neck. I was like, no, no. interesting. No. <laughs> it's progressive. Uh, we can do some things. <laughs> we can do some things with the the tongue as well. But this yeah. like. This system right here at the thoracic outlet is actually connected to the diaphragm at the in the embryonic stage. They're actually physically connected, and then there's always that connection. And I can take somebody's power output on a squat and shoot it up like ten percent just by touching them and cueing just a little minor fucking tweaks in position right there, yep. and boom. And then these positions in here are massive, right? So it's not just about like, oh, I got to get the joint in the right position. If I don't have the joints in the right position, everything on, it affects the neurology, which then affects the output. Like getting stronger isn't just going in the gym and beating your head against a plate, (laughs) you know? Like beating the head against a plate, maybe the wrong term, but you know what I mean? Like it's not just a meathead position and going there and pushing yourself to the limits. And like, we're talking about how can I move more force in the world? which is so much of that is actually neurological. Mm. Look, I'm a big guy. I'm nowhere fucking size the people that move the weights that I do. No, you're not. I'm not. Yeah. Watch my movement. I'm shoeless in every, every one of my, those training videos for squats and deadlifts. Look at my foot position. Look so at my ankle. Squat with no, Look, no heel lift at all? No. No. That's freaking, it's a huge fault if you have to have that. Yeah, right. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Olympic lifting, because they Olympic have to get in this so really low. weird position that is actually not natural, you have to get it to get in that position. But to perform a squat, no, absolutely not. Are you going down to 90 degrees yeah. at 1,000 pounds? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So you've got to be able to have great rooting and grounding and control the foot and ankle complex. Watch those, and you can see everything, because I don't have anything showing it. You'll see zero deviation in that stuff. There's yeah. still opportunity to be better, but in video you're not going to find any leaks. People always comment about that on my deadlifting and squatting. There is no given position. That's Watch cool. me deadlift 675 pounds for 20 reps in 30 seconds. Undeniably, like one of the most impressive deadlift feats of strength you'll ever see. I do not break technique ever. It's such a beautiful way to describe it that you'll find zero leaks. If we could... There's always, le- I'm not like, yeah, no, but that's beautiful. That's the intention. Yeah. Like, that's, that's your intention is to move through your deadlift or your squat with the, the minimal, minimal amount of lost Absolutely. energy through, through leakage. Yeah. What, what is, what and is people like, like, people online like think I'm, uh, like, think I'm a midget or something because yeah. my lifts, like my, particularly my deadlift, they look like the bar doesn't move. Yeah. So they think I'm really, because, but it's when the movement's so clean, yeah. it doesn't even, it's still the same start and finish position. But it looks like. Can you define what what leak leak means? An energy leak is anywhere where the power is not being transferred from the primary mover to the implement of force. So we could think about that as being the shoulder, honestly, in all those movements. If we're, I mean, you could have an energy leak in the in the deadlift if you've got some tension in your arm. Yeah. 
but you've got a rubber spring in there anytime that you've got a leak. So it's like a, a fishing pole, right? So if you've got the line connected to the fish and you go to pull and that pole starts bending, yep. that's an energy link. And that's what a lot of people's deadlifts look like. Mm. Whoop. Yeah. So a leak would be like if you're squatting anytime, maybe the, the Versus knee, being able the to put every bit like of force that I crank on the pole immediately to the fish. Yeah. So, so specific anatomical examples of that would be like the knee dropping in or maybe collapsing forward and yep. thoracic going spine, into flexion, coming out of neutrality uh, yep. through, yep. maybe dumping the neck mm-hmm. too far either direction, just coming out of neutrality, finding joint centration through the whole entire system from toe up to, you know. And then maintaining and controlling cranium. it. And then maintaining and controlling it through balanced respiration. Yep. And then being able to oh, now right. take that, whatever, whatever the power output, like, if it's if it's oppressing, it's going to be the shoulder and pecs. Like that, every ounce of what they're delivering goes now through that system. Yeah, you you hear all the metaphors of how this relates to life in general. Oh, fuck yeah, right. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking cool. <laughs> Do you feel like you felt that experience? Have you learned lessons from weightlifting? I already know the answer. Almost oh my absolutely God. Is yes, but but lessons from weightlifting that transfer into daily life and relationships and all that stuff without being overly like woo woo metaphysical, unless you want to. Yeah, and so many people miss the gaps. They're great at one, and then they don't get the connection of the other. Like, let's take the business person that's incredible at seeing the long-term picture and knowing that it's going to take time and following a disciplined structure and project plan to get somewhere, but then they can't transfer that to going into there's the a gym. Let, there's a gym bro that does all that and nails it, yeah. but they're not doing that with their life or in their work, not realizing... They know how to project manage. They know how to deal with these circumstances. Like, oh, I got this injury, and now we're going to do this, and we're going to troubleshoot, and we're going to work around and lateralize, and we're going to... Like, <laughs> there's so many aspects that come to that. There's the, the, the confidence to being able to... You know, if you, if you step up to a 1,000-pound bar, you have to be prepared for the fact that if I second-guess myself, I'm not going to get the lift. I have to be okay with walking up that bar and knowing that if I go down, I might not come back up. Sure. And I have to be okay with that. And sometimes in life, those are the things that you got to be prepared for the, the outcome, right? What's the outcome I, of not coming up from a thousand pound lift? Uh, might be a torn muscle, might be a blown out knee, might be any number of things. But when you're talking freaky weights, thousand pounds will freaky destroy your. Can happen. Thousand pounds will destroy your body. Yeah. But you got to master the confidence and know that I've done the skill. I've done all this stuff. But at the same time, go, if I walk up and I'm afraid, that fear, that rattlesnake in my hand, I have to respect it. If I do not respect it, I am dead. Being fearless is stupid. Certainly. Okay? But I also have to be able to control and manage that fear and not get the best of me. And the only way to because get if I don't, pressure. I'm gonna die too. Yeah, that rattlesnake taught me how to deadlift, and squat a thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah. You need the exposure to get you to the point where your autonomic nervous system doesn't go haywire under stress. Yeah, you need that gradual exposure where you understand the metaphoric <laughs> rattlesnake. You understand, okay, I, I have all the variables sorted out of what could I could potentially do depending upon all the different situations that could manifest so I can yep. be calm and present with I, it because I have the bandwidth to be present yep. because I've done the, the work. Yep. I have I have a difficult relationship with uh, uh, someone in my life that I need to step up and, and be able to address. And the worst case scenario is we may no longer be seeing each other in this and this and outcomes might be. But being able to step into it, knowing those outcomes and trying to move it in the direction that you need to as well. Yeah. This is this is life. What right? can normal people learn from you in relation to creating using breath as a tool not just for down regulation and calming but also compression and strength. Oh, okay. Air is not the stabilizing force. Okay. So many people you see and they watch a big lifter or whatever and they go <gasps> Learn to do it with no air. Hmm. Put your fingers on my belly. Okay. Put them, Where? Put them, uh, put them in my oblique. Side? Yeah. Right there. And you'll see that without any, any use of air, and I can talk over the top of this, mm. that I can fully control 
eccentric loading of my cavity. Yep. They're two separate functions. Don't learn to do them together at once. It's hard. Because mm. you'll find you'll default to the other. So develop the mastery of doing it without. Being able to add a little bit more from, you know, a little bit more fill is maybe another 10. I'm making up numbers, but it's probably around another 10% more, maybe. Mm. Okay? Respiration, you need enough under a thousand pound squat, I need enough air so I don't pass out. Right. So I don't die. I don't need air to stabilize. Hmm. The diaphragm can descend without air. I can create all that stabilization. Interesting. Most people, and this will help people a long ways in mastering those. Then, how would someone actually take that practice into real life through audio? Form or video. Is there okay. anything that you could I've show? got some great videos you'll find on Kabuki underscore virtual coaching okay. on uh, or the Kabuki uh, YouTube. We also have kabuki.ms or just uh, type it, find Kabuki virtual coaching, the website. We've got an indexed video library. I love that. With breathing, what are some of the the kind of breathing fallacies that you see that are common, such as maybe like, you know, a belly breath and what that is and the value so, of that. Yeah, so be- belly breath is a, is a major fault. We need to be able to breathe 360 degrees around. Right. A belly breath is exactly that. We've degrees. got a forward yeah. breath and we're missing all of the rest of that. So that is it just all, it's the same faults as all the other stuff that uh, we've talked about. We need to be filling that cavity all the way around. Uh, some people that get too much into so much into this, they think about just that area, yeah. and then they lock down because we don't want to have any upper movement. So up in the clavicle, you know, be able to put your hands up on your clavicle and being able to breathe without the raise in the clavicle. But they don't let the the breath. So it starts. It should start at the bottom and start filling up. It doesn't actually work that way, right? Because the lungs are up here. Um, but these are the cues that we use. But you know, thinking lungs from, go high. They're just yeah. under the clavicle. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So, um, was that the superior lobe or something? And, but we always think about breathing in into here and belly, bre- like, like, yeah. like, you know, there's, there's organs in here, yeah. but these, these external cues work for that. So, so we start down here and that breath should work in as a wave as that expansion goes up and it actually should still go up into these lower ribs here and they should expand outwards as you reach the top of that yeah, laterally. Okay. As you're practicing this stuff, you might have to take short breaths because you'll default. So taking shorter breaths as you right. practice until you get more experience to being able to do this. If you have a fault with breathing, you're going to have faults with stabilization. Yep. This is just how it works. That's an interesting thing with, with the, the breathing. It's kind of like when you, if you breathe too much, it's like adding too much load to the bar and then you're just gonna revert back yep. to old survival patterns. Yep. Yeah, that's a, such a common mistake in the lifting arena that we see all the time. <gasps> and then as they do that, what are they opening the chest, raising the chest? Like then we're getting a disconnect. Mm. We're actually separating the shoulder structure from the from the core, right? Interesting. Um, instead of packing fuller and tighter. And then there's other stabilizers we don't think about as well, like the lats. The lats are yep. a huge stabilizer tying that in. So we actually need to be drawing those towards and creating, pulling that shoulder towards that core. So the other one with that is belts. People crank these belts on thinking that they're going to be providing the stabilization. Yeah. And you need to actually have the belt set loose enough, two fingers that you can drop in, so you can expand into it. If right. it's too constricted, we can't actually eccentrically load that arena. But all the belt is doing is, it's again, surrounding that, that outer sheath and making that what would be stronger, which would normally be the, the rectus, the obliques, and the thoracolumbar musculature, Right? But those still need to be allowed to span. So I actually really like a Velcro belt. Oh, uh, we sell one, it's a, a breathe belt, uh, a friend of mine of that developed. And you could, it cues, and that's where a belt can be useful because there's yeah. also the anti-belt crowd. Right. And I'm going, it's a great tactile cue. Yeah, it's like a like, relationship. Like this area back here that we talked about, like are you feeling that into the back as well? And if you think about it and then you can feel it on the belt, you're like, oh, there it is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the belt, I'm enamored by that analogy that the belt acts as a feedback mechanism to let your body know where it's at in space. It gives you something to lean into. And it's once again, it's just interesting how that relates to the way that we show up with another person. If you're just alone, you can be an asshole and you know have shitty mechanics and all that stuff, but you don't have the feedback to tell you where oh, you're yeah, in space. Yeah. But if you're with another person, they're leaning up against you, you're like, you know, like, nope, like, here you are. Yep. 
I mean, this is the belt. I mean, what can yeah. the belt be used as pure support, or should the belt only be used as feedback for you to create your own support? Um, it can be used as pure support too. Yeah. And obviously, that's what I did when I was squatting a thousand pounds. Right. I was using that structure because I would not have a strong enough outer sheath to be able to accomplish that. Mm. Mine's strong. It's big. You saw me yesterday without my shirt on. I'm lean. Yeah. But my waist is big. Yeah. <laughs> what about all the talk of, of like transverse abdominus and you know accessing that corset? What is, what is, does uh, that exist in a vacuum? Is that something that we can train? Is that something like, what should people know about the TBA? The TBA has a very minor, but it does have some impact. Yeah. I believe some more recent research is showing that it, it does have, have a relation, but there's pretty significant showing that that's not the focus and really um, getting that co-contraction of more of the, the obliques and uh, thoracolumbar musculature mm. would be the priority focus. So what I try to do is, what's the minimal amount of cues that I can have to affect change yeah. that I need? I can't think about 20 things. I'm pretty damn good at what I do. Five things is max. Sure. So here's That's my... the best way to cue somebody as well. If you give yeah. them one specific cue to think about, this has been research yeah. around this, they'll nail it. But if you say like, okay, focus on the, the toe and the knee and the yeah. torque and the hip and the spine, the person becomes lost. Yeah. And instead of just like focus on getting that point yeah. into that hoop or whatever, yeah. that's, whatever the individual cues are, different people will be doing so, what they're cueing. Squat. I've got the bar on my back. What am I going to do? I'm going to inflate. I'm going to fill. I'm going to use all the cues, but I'm going to pick the couple ones that I practice. Maybe this and this. Or this and this, and those are going to be when I'm like inflate. Boom. Okay, good. Yeah. Like I can't think about all that. Like I don't have to think about TBA. I don't have to think about the Valsalva. I don't have to think about all these things because I've just given you a couple that's going to turn all that on. Yeah, it's a shotgun. And that's what I want, right? Inflate. Boom. Root to the ground. I'm thinking about strong, active feet. You know, controlling that uh, that arch in the position, the ankle complex. Boom. Root. All right. Draw the bar in. I'm going to take, turn the lats on, and I'm going to draw to my center, shoulders into the core. Okay. This is loading for a squat? Yep. Yeah. And now, all I'm going to do is sit back in the squat. Enjoy the ride. Break back. Yeah. There's nothing else. <laughs> Once I've got all that stuff, all my cues are set up. Yeah. Because if you've done that right, there's nothing that can happen. I don't have to worry about knee position. I don't have to worry about elbow, I don't have to worry about all these peripheral stuff that people love to sit back, 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 knees out, knees, you know, like whatever, chest up, chest up, all the stuff people are yelling during the lift. There's nothing that can be happening. If I turn all that stuff on, the torso doesn't move, it doesn't break, the feet lock, control the hips. If I just, boom, open that hip and hinge, boom, there's nothing that can happen but for me to sit back between the legs. Yeah. That there's only one output. And just stand back up. And that's all I can think about when I'm squatting. You're like, I can't think about all that shit. No. Sit between my legs and I'm standing up. Yeah. That's Thanks it. So. Thanks so much for making time to do this, man. We got to wrap up because we got lives to tend to outside. Of. Yes, we do. We're here at the beautiful Bell Campo. We're up in the, the, uh, yeah. the private. This was a good time. We covered, uh, we covered some good space. Yeah. Oh. I do have, so I have a best-selling book on my, yeah, my life in the, yeah, uh, so chrisduffin.com or christopherduffin.com. You can get a free audio download Great. via that, uh, that, and there's links to Kabuki Strength, Barefoot Athletics, and my supplement company, Build Fast, if you're into really pushing the, uh, that side of it. Nail diet and nutrition first. Supplements are not the answer. They're like the little cream on the crop, but I'm a junkie on everything, and so I make some Maybe good stuff. Maybe a supplement sometimes can get you to the point of having the inspiration to start eating yeah. right. So, you know. But yeah, everything that I do and believe in, I create and bring to the world. So yeah. it's all there. So we have the best biomechanically sound barbells and products in the world, soft tissue, myofascial tools, all that sort of stuff. But again, I sell myofascial tools and I tell you, you shouldn't need them. Yeah. But there's going to be times. But understand, yeah. find the root cause as well. Yeah, I think so, the root of, um, of, of like optimal health or just living well is pretty darn available to anybody yep. anywhere. It's like be outside, eat reasonably decent yep. food, drink reasonably decent water, have reasonably decent relationships, hopefully be doing something that you're actively engaged with that doesn't bum you out for yeah. your profession. Yep. You know, have like a purpose to be here. Purpose. I think purpose is purpose. a major thing. Yes. If you have purpose, 
a lot of the other variables kind of. Well, and that, so you know, that's what my book. You want to align them my all. My book but. doesn't tell you how to live or what's right or wrong, but every chapter is like just working you towards this introspection piece of for yourself of what is your north star? Yeah. What are what are the driving things and values and way that you want to live? And yeah. then from there, you can start establishing goals and a way of realizing that. Yeah. And so my book is not a wild story to you know, entertain you. It does do that. It provides a little motivation, all that sort of stuff. But uh, it is written for you, yeah. the, the reader. And uh, you'll see that when you, when you read it. So social media, just type in Chris Duffin, like muffin, but with a D. Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. They can see us acro yoga together. That's right. I can't wait to get the video, Mr. Both both of you video human beings. I'd love to get that and show. (laughs) I had you upside down. I almost dropped you. Did you know that? I I, I was like, I'm like, oh God, we might be going down. So yeah, I almost almost dropped you. Sorry about that. But I saved That wasn't one of the the transitions. Yeah, I turn you around. I think it's called like the walnut or the pizza pie or something. They turn you around and you're kind of cubed up and I'm rotating your body and we almost went down. So people can see that. I felt that I was was good. I was confident. (laughs) So is there anything else? No, that's it. Like I said, if you're if you're interested in exploring that stuff, check it out. If not, that's fine too. Cool. Well, I appreciate you very much, and um, it's such a cool thing to get to see someone that's done so much with themselves from a physical perspective, also have so much depth in the other realms, and mental, emotional, and philosophical, and and also to be willing to take yourself out of being the person that you are in the strength world and be totally open to having the adaptability to go to Santa Monica Muscle Beach and do some weird shit. So I commend you. I appreciate it. It was fun. I enjoy doing stuff like that. And uh, I love these other conversations because it is, it's three things, man. We're developing resilience of body, mind, and soul. That's it. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I appreciate you making time. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Over and out. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Chris is just such a genuine, sweet, humble, kind human being, and he's got so much to offer in the way of the way that he thinks and what he does in the world. So it's such a beautiful thing to get to share his perspectives with y'all. If you did find some interesting insights from this that you'd like to share with your own community, por favor, you can tag me at Align Podcast. You could also tag Chris at mad underscore scientist underscore Duffin. Lastly, if you would like to create some more strength in your own body, I highly recommend checking out the Total Strength Kit, which is the package of resistance bands, door anchor, also a hip band and a traveling case that I came up with for my perfect traveling solution. I'm on the road. I like to be able to train, like to be able to work out, like to be able to get sweat in. I also like to be able to create some flexibility and mobility in my joints. So the beautiful thing with the strength kit is it includes the door anchor, which allows you to not just do workouts, but also allows you to essentially use it as a self-care or self-massage tool. So you can use it as a tractioning tool to open up your hips, open up your knees, open up your ankles, really any joint in your body. We also have instructional guides on how to do that. So highly recommend checking that out. You can learn more over at alignpodcast.com slash shop. That's alignpodcast.com slash shop. All right, thank you guys so much. And I look forward to whispering into your ear holes next week. Bye.